Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to have everyone. Um, If you brought a Bible with you to church, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew ahead of you. Unless you're sitting in the back with the chairs in the court of the Gentiles, then there's no Bibles back there. Maybe you can move forward. Either way, bring a Bible. We'll be on uh, Genesis chapter 1. That would be on the Pew Bible. That'll be page 1 of your Bible. We're beginning a new series. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be in this series through the entire month of August. We're calling this series Housekeeping, How the Gospel Builds Family. Uh, There are going to be four parts to this series. Today we're going to look at the man who leads his family with the gospel. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do the woman who builds family with the gospel. The third week, we'll look at parenting and how you parent with the gospel. And then the last week, I think the one I'm most excited about is uh, in week four of this series, we're going to do the church that protects families with the gospel and showing how uh, family is a community project uh, done by all the church. And so uh, that's August. We'll return to the gospel of John in September. Um, So I hope that you make it a point to be here through this series. I think it will be beneficial to you, those of you who are part of a family, which is all of us. Of course, um, the tech team will be faithful, as they always are, to make sure that these recordings get put online so that you can share them with your friends or rewatch them if you like. So Genesis chapter 1, let's go ahead and read verse 26 down to verse 28, and then I'll pray and uh, we'll get started. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male. And female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, I'm going to need your Holy Spirit to help me this morning. I've been tasked with preaching your inerrant word. My words do not contain power and they are not inerrant. So make what I say accord to your word. If there's something in my notes that is wrong, I pray that you would blind me to it, remove it from my mind, and if there's something there in your word that I have missed, I pray you would bring it to my attention such that your people would be edified and encouraged and families would be strengthened and the foundation of the church strengthened and society as a whole benefited as the gospel moves from fathers, husbands, to families, to churches, to the nation, to the nations. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Pastor 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was single when he wrote a wedding sermon to his niece and her fiance. He would have officiated their wedding himself, but he was locked in a prison cell outside of Berlin, Germany. You see, because in April of 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested for his resistance of the Nazis and also for helping Jews escape the Holocaust. As a German pastor, Bonhoeffer was outspoken against Hitler and his policies. The Nazis attempted to silence Bonhoeffer, but he kept on. He trained pastors in an underground seminary. But eventually, his resistance to the Nazis caught up with him, and he was arrested. While he couldn't officiate his niece's wedding, he could write the sermon. Here's a portion of what this single pastor wrote to his niece in her, for her wedding. Marriage is more than your love for each other. Your love is your own private possession. But marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Marriage is from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity and rights and promises of marriage above the sanctity and rights and promises of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but your marriage that sustains the love. We're starting a series on family by quoting from an unmarried man who fathered no children. And this is by design. Bonhoeffer was killed. He was executed one month before Germany surrendered. And the reason I'm starting a series by quoting an unmarried man who never fathered a a child is because the author of the book of Hebrews says this, to the church, let marriage be held in honor among all, among all. Not everyone in this room is married. Some have been married, but are not now married. Some are not married, but someday will be married. Others will never marry. But nevertheless, the commandment is here. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All of us, regardless of our marital status, have the responsibility to uphold the institution of marriage. Because marriage is a community project. So if you're a new Christian, or you're new to the whole church thing, This may sound strange. Why would an unmarried person concern themselves at all with the marriages of other people? Why is God so insistent that marriage would be honored among everybody, even single people? There are a couple of answers to that. We'll start in Genesis 1 and attempt to answer that question. So if you have a handout in the back of your program, you can follow along if you like. Our first point is this. Family is the foundation of human society. 
This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps. On the sixth day of creation, God created man. In verse 27, we get a little bit more detail. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So three times in two verses, the Bible states that mankind was made in the image of God. This is what makes humans different from the rest of creation. This is why we weep over the death of a mother, but rejoice over the death of a mosquito. Because humans are different than creation. Not all created life is equal. Not all created life is equally precious. All created human life is equally precious. And this is because humans were created in the image of God. This is why, regardless of age, ability, ethnicity, every human is precious. Notice the human mandate given in verse 26. Let them have dominion. God has given dominion to humans over the earth. This is why Christians should care about the environment. This is why Christians should care about the earth. It's ours. In the same way that when your house is dirty, you clean it. When the earth is dirty, you clean it. Verse 27 to 28 provides the basis of human society. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed, notice what the Bible says, them. The two of them. Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, come together and God blesses their union together. God blesses them. Not God blessed him. Not God blessed her. God blessed them. The foundation of human society is a man and a woman coming together, the union of a man and a woman. And then he tells them, the man and the woman, together in marriage to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, be fruitful and make babies. In order to subdue the earth, in order to do what God has created humans to do, you're going to need more people. So go have sex and make them, is what he's saying. When everybody says, fist bump, amen. (laughs) You're not the only one, believe me. Everybody else is thinking it. The mandate for the first two humans then is to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This is the foundation of human society. One man, one woman coming together in marriage, having children. God has chosen to enable human flourishing by creating family. Families are the foundation of society. As families go, Cornerstone, so goes society. See the order. God created man, then God created woman, then God created marriage, then God created family. So if society is weak, it is weak because families are weak. If families are weak, it's because marriages are weak. If marriages are weak, it's because men are weak. More on that in a moment. So here's one answer to the question, why would God want marriage to be held in honor above all, is that marriage, by God's design, is the basis of human society. Even if you're not married, marriage matters. Ask any social worker the effect on society of the breakdown of of, of the nuclear family. The social issues in our world at their core are really family issues, aren't they? 
when families fall, the entire society is affected. This is one reason why single people should care about marriages. But there's another reason, I think, a bigger one, a much bigger one. Marriage must be held in honor among all because of what marriage is. So to find out what that is, let's point our Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, to be specific. So if you're in a pew Bible, that's page 979. Ephesians chapter 5, that is in the New Testament. I'll give you a moment to look that up. We're going to begin reading in verse 25. Ephesians 5.25, we're asking the question, why in the world does marriage matter so much to God? Why is it to be held in honor among all, even single people? Even widows, even divorcees, why does it matter? Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, or that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why does marriage matter so much to God? Because society matters? Sure. Because God knows what devastation happens to children and to individuals when they get divorced? Sure, that's part of it. But I think the biggest reason of all is in verse 32. This mystery is profound. And Paul is saying that this marriage refers to Christ and the church. Cornerstone ma- marriage matters because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus gave himself. He laid down his self for the sake of the church. Husbands, when we laid ourselves down for the sake of our wife, we are demonstrating the gospel. When we cherish her, when we wash her with the water of the word, we show how Christ is cherishing his church. When we set her apart and treat her special, we're showing that Jesus sets his church apart and treats her different. Sanctifies her. When we take from her, instead of give to her, what do we do? We're demonstrating that Jesus is a taker, an abuser. When we are harsh with our wives, we are showing that Jesus is cruel to his church. When we are absent from our wives physically, emotionally, spiritually, then we are communicating that Christ abandons his church. Marriage is more than a relationship of two people. Marriage is about the gospel. Marriage is the gospel on a stage, 
under the lights. Jesus humbled himself, left the privileges of heaven to seek out his church, to give himself for her. And men like him, we ought to humble ourselves and set aside our privileges to seek our wives' hearts and lay down ourselves for her. Jesus took responsibility for the spiritual and emotional and physical well-being of his bride. And men like him, we are to take responsibility for the spiritual and emotional, physical well-being of our spouse. Jesus was actively engaged in preparing the church for heaven, lovingly washing her, washing away her spots and wrinkles and blemishes. And like him, we should be actively engaged in preparing our spouse for heaven. How, how are you lovingly and gently leading her, serving the work of the Holy Spirit, informing Christ in her life? Jesus nourishes the church and prays for her and protects her. And men were to be the same way, to nourish her, to cherish her, and to pray for her protect her. So ask yourselves, gentlemen, does my interactions with my wife cause her to thrive emotionally, spiritually? Does she long to be around me because the more she's around me, the more she feels safe and cherished and adored? If you don't know the answer to that question, you just ask her. Ask her if she feels cherished by her. Ask, what do I need to do to meet you emotionally, supply you emotionally, spiritually? Even if she can't answer that, at least it starts a dialogue and you can begin working on it. Men, do your marriage like Christ does the church. Marriage substantiates the gospel. It makes it material, it gives it legs. It puts it on the stage and shines a light on the gospel. This is why marriage is more than love. It's more than your fulfillment. Commitment in marriage is primarily a commitment to marriage. Commitment in marriage is primarily a commitment to marriage. It's not a commitment to your spouse Primarily, it's a commitment to the institution itself. That's why Bonhoeffer said it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. You know, in the 1950s, Frank Sinatra sang that song, Love and Marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. I don't know what old blue eyes thought came first, which one was the horse, which one was the carriage, but I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says the marriage is the horse, the love is the carriage. Marriage drives, the institution drives your love, pulls it along. Marriage substantiates the gospel. Look at it like this. If an unchurched person were to walk into this Cornerstone Piqua, and maybe they're not a believer, And they're just a little confused about why 21st century Americans are just so wild and crazy about a Palestinian who died 2,000 years ago on a cross. Why you sing songs to Jesus Christ of Nazareth? 
What, is, what did he do for you that makes you so crazy about him? So they're coming in here, they're wondering this. We, ideally, should be able to say to that person, you know, I could tell you, but I think I'd rather show you. How about after church, we go out to lunch with Matt and Tina Flora, or Steve and Alyssa Minter, and we watch how he is with her. We watch how he cherishes her. Do you see how he speaks to her and it nourishes her and builds her up and lifts her? Do you see how she defers to his leadership, that she listens when he speaks? Do you see how they are with one another in this complimentary dance? He's being what Jesus is to us. And that's why we love him so much. Cornerstone, that's not idealization. That ought to be the reality of the marriages in this church. The world has plenty of examples of broken relationships. But what they don't have are examples of gospel-centered relationships. That's what you and I are meant to give them in the way we are with our families. And it can only happen when the whole church is involved in the process of honoring, sustaining, and protecting marriage. But it all starts, it all starts with the men. The man who leads his family with the gospel. So let's go back to Genesis again. Go back to the beginning of the Bible. This time we're going to be in chapter 3. After God created the heavens and the earth, he said that everything was good. Except one thing. Do you remember the one thing that God said was not good? It is not good that a man be alone. You remember that? Now, I'm not sure why God determined that. He watched Adam for a while, and I suppose for some reason that was his conclusion. Maybe he visited the bathroom or something, decided, boy, needs some help. <laughs> it is not good that man be alone. So God put Adam to sleep. And he made Eve. I think it's an important point that God put Adam to sleep when he made Adam a wife. Because a sleeping man can't give his input, as you know. And men don't know what, they, let's be honest, guys, we don't know what we want. We really don't. We have no idea what we want. How many pocket knives do you have, guys? Six? Seven? Why do you keep buying them? Because you don't know what you want. You're just like, I got four at home. I only need one, but that one's got that extra. I don't, I didn't, the other one don't have that. That has that. We just keep buying crap we don't need. We don't know what we want. So God makes Eve without Adam's input, and he brings Eve to Adam. And he, Adam sees this woman that God had made for him with no clothes on, and he sings. Take note. The first thing the first man did when he saw his wife was spout poetry. 
Look at, go to chapter 2, verse 23. This is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He writes poetry. The first thing Adam does when he sees her is he writes poetry, spouting sonnets. Well, so far so good, Adam. Well done. But that didn't last very long. Go to chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, gave, she, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What verse is that? Verse 6. Six verses in. He hasn't spoken a word. His wife is engaged in a theological conversation about the word of God with the enemy of God and he's standing there doing nothing. Saying nothing. He's not protecting her. He's not shielding her. He's not stepping between the enemy and his wife and beating that stupid snake with a stick. He's doing nothing. I grew up in the 90s, and we used to have this video series on VHS called Superbook. Y'all remember that? And they, they would, it was, the premise was these little kids, this animated series, they'd go back in time to Bible stories. And I distinctly remember in, in the Superbook version of Genesis 3, the Eve is there, she's having a conversation with, with the, the serpent, and he's in the tree, and they're talking. And she, she, she eats the fruit, and then, then, then the, 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 the scene it like shifts, and Adam's over here doing some other godly, manly thing, like chopping wood or something, and, 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 the, and, and, and somehow this, he has to learn that his wife has now fallen into sin, and then he has to go over there, and he kind of meanders his way along, and then he comes there, and she gives him the fruit, and he eats the fruit. That's not how it happened at all. He was there the whole time. What does verse 6 say? She took of the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Let's just keep reading. I'm going to skip that in my, my notes. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sounds like a great idea. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Notice men there, verse 7, 8, and 9. When God calls an inventory on the marriage, he calls to the man. And where is he? Where is Adam? What's he doing? He's hiding. 
They should be running to God for repentance and for help. But he's hiding. You know, in all these years of doing marital counseling, I have yet, sadly, to have the man come to me and say, Pastor Jamie, my marriage is in trouble. I need help. Brothers, it's always the women. It's always the women who come first. I've said this many times. The problems in a marriage may not be the man's fault, but they are always his responsibility. So God calls to Adam, where are you? Now you understand, God is not ascertaining information. He's not, God knows where Adam is, but does Adam know where Adam is? Verse 10, and he said, Adam saying to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave to be with me, she ate the fruit of the tree and I So he shifts the blame of his own sin. It's someone else's fault. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. He doesn't own his sin. He acts like a coward and he blames other people. He blames Eve. But if you look closely, he's actually blaming God, isn't he? The woman you gave me, you gave me a defective product. What I want you to see, Cornerstone, is in, in the fall, how roles have reversed. God gave Eve to Adam, and he was supposed to lovingly lead her, and she was supposed to defer to his leadership, but the roles have been reversed. She's the one having the theological conversation with the enemy. Homeboy's on standby. He's not engaging. He's not initiating. He's not protecting. His passivity has brought his family into ruin. Brothers, our passivity in our families will ruin our families. I promise you. It's not to say that women can't hold families together. (laughs) Thousands do. Because they're forced to. But I've never met a, a single woman who would say, that's the way I like it. I like doing everything so that my man can just sit around and do nothing. I haven't met a single woman who wouldn't appreciate a man who initiates with his kids and with the home and with her spiritual and emotional well-being. Let's skip down to verse 17. And to Adam, this is the curse that God speaks to Adam because of sin. And to Adam, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, 
you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's Adam's curse. Brother, you didn't lead. And look what happened. The effects of sin are toil and thorns and thistles and life is hard and life is frustrating. Work is hard and work never ends and family life is hard. If you got married to make your life easier, bro, you got married for the wrong reasons. Here's the sad reality. Adam's cowardly blood flows in our veins. Adam's nature and tendency to absenteeism, to not engage, to do nothing, to sit there, it runs in our veins. His tendency to defer his leadership to others, his tendency to defer responsibility to others, his tendency to, to defer the teaching of his children to others, his tendency to defer the, the spiritual well-being of his wife to others, his cowardice, it's been passed on to us, men. Some of the greatest men in history were terrible husbands and fathers. I mean, they could lead armies, They could run Fortune 500 companies. But their family life was a mess. Why why is this? Because a selfless leader at home strips a man of his glory instead of adding to it. You know, when a CEO leads a company to record profits, people write magazine articles about him and they put him... They put his picture on places, pay him lots of money, give him lots of acclaim and glory. When a general leads his troops to victory, he wins glory in the eyes of the nation. But when a dad reads the Jesus Storybook Bible to his kids before tucking them into bed, what does he get? Nothing. Kids usually fall asleep while he's reading to them. They don't wake up in the morning so thankful. Your seven-year-old's not waking up in the morning saying, thank you, Father, for leading me spiritually. Where would I be without your husbandry? They don't say thank you. Where's the glory when a husband takes his wife's hand and listens to her pour out her heart, then reads the Bible with her and prays over her? Nobody's writing articles in magazines about that guy. Well, nobody, nobody but God. Fellas, Adam is clawing at you, raging on the inside to gain control of your life. And when he does, you'll become a do-nothing. A boy, not a man, who'd rather play video games than read scripture, who'd rather go fishing than take his family school shopping, or buy tools and then balk 
when his wife wants to go to dinner. Adam can't see the glory of being there at his kids' sports games and dance recitals and band concerts. Adam would rather play on his phone and watch TV than get down on the floor and play with his kids. And that Adam, that fool, he's in every man in this room. But there are good news. There's good news, fellas. While the first Adam has done such damage, the last one fixed it. There is another Adam. Jesus Christ is called the last Adam. And what the first Adam did, the last Adam undid. Adam was inactive. Jesus took initiative. Adam was not, he did not protect his wife from danger, but Jesus shielded his wife from danger with his own body. Adam watched his wife take her own life, and Jesus laid down his life for his. Adam blamed others for their sins. Jesus took the blame of other sins on himself. Everything that Adam gave away at his tree, Jesus got it back on his. And so husbands, listen, you have the privilege of living out what Jesus was in defiance to what Adam was. Jesus loves you. You love her in the same way. Jesus gave himself for you, even though you were undeserving. You give yourself to your wife, even though she's undeserving. Jesus sanctifies you with the water of his word. You sanctify her in the same way. Jesus forgives those who fail him. You forgive her when she fails you. Jesus cherishes and nourishes you so you cherish and nourish her. And this is a call to arms, men. This is a privilege to lay down your life on the battlefield of your family, to work diligently, to serve faithfully, and to lead sacrificially, your family is depending upon it. This church is depending upon it. I want you to understand that this church will rise and fall on the backs of families. And families will rise and fall on the backs of marriages. And marriages will rise and fall on the backs of men. The mission that God has given to this church is dependent on strong, God-fearing men who lovingly, sacrificially lead with the gospel in their homes. May God grant men to have the Bible in their head, love in their heart, and steel in their spines for the sake of his gospel. May God grant men to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the good of their families to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light.